From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. This week on the show, Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers chat with Dallas ISD Superintendent Michael Hinojosa about the start of the new school year. And the Dallas Morning News Washington Bureau Chief Todd Gilman, who's tracking the negotiations on the coronavirus relief bill in Congress. Plus, Gromer says there might be something Texas Democrats want more in the November election than to flip the state in the presidential race. As schools across the state inch closer to starting a new school year in the middle of a pandemic, the decisions about whether to push back or open on time or conduct class online or in person vary wildly across North Texas. Several school districts, including Granbury, Prosper, and Wiley, will allow students on campus Wednesday or Thursday. Parents in those districts had the option to choose virtual or face-to-face instruction, and dozens more campuses will follow in the next two to three weeks. The area's biggest school districts, in Dallas and Fort Worth, have delayed the start of the school year a little bit longer. Dallas ISD will begin online and in-person on September 8th, while Fort Worth ISD will begin virtually the same day, with the option for students to return to campuses October 5th. Here's Dallas ISD Superintendent Michael Hinojosa with Julian Gromer. Let's start with this. Do you feel you have a clear plan for the school yet in terms of in-person and virtual learning? Yes, we're very confident of where we are at this point. Luckily, the numbers in the county are getting much better. So we, we expect that we'll have some hope of actually having uh, in-person instruction on September the 8th. And our parents need to let us know on August 25th whether they want to learn at home or in person. So it's starting to become a little more clear as we go every week that we get closer to the start of school. So, so doctor, we've seen this in, in professional sports, my favorite sport, baseball. What happens if a student tests positive? What, what's the plan there? Well, we've been told that this will probably happen. And as you've seen in baseball, who, who, who is not in the bubble, and we won't be in the bubble, right. but it's going to happen. So we're going to have a, a protocol where we shut down. If it's very isolated, we could only shut down the classroom. That's probably not likely. It may be a whole school that we'll have to shut down, but we don't have to shut down the entire district if we have a case or two. And so we'll depend on our health, local county health officials to give us some guidance, but we do have protocols and we do have the expectation that we're going to have some active cases as we go along. Now, experts say virtual learning is not a true replacement for in-person learning. Are you worried that this could make some students fall behind? Yes, I'm concerned about it because they're not wrong about that. But we've done, we've done, gone to great lengths uh, over the summer to train our teachers on how to use uh, the tools, and now we're training them on how to use, how to deliver science and the content in that endeavor. And also, we have operation connectivity so that we don't have gaps in students having access to broadband. So we're in much better shape we are today in August than we were in March when this journey started. And so there's no doubt uh, in-person instruction is better, but we have to be safe. And so we have to have a good backup plan in case we're not in person. So doctor, how did you deal with potential digital divides for students that don't have access to the internet? What did you do to solve that problem? We were very fortunate that we already had a one-to-one initiative. So we had the devices available and we bought more for our elementary kids. And those are now in, in the warehouse and ready to be delivered. The biggest challenge was hotspots at home. We had 36,000 households that did not have access to the internet. So we deployed hotspots. But hotspots are not a panacea. They're not a good solution. They're just a good interim solution. 
So we're on a plan for Operation Connectivity to have broadband to everyone by January 1st. And no one has told me that that, that goal is not realistic yet. So there are a lot of moving parts. This month, the board is going to approve an engineering firm that will help us get there. But that's the biggest challenge we had is how do we connect broad, broadband connectivity to our families at home so that we can keep um, instruction going on. Not only instruction, but telehealth and also people that need to apply for a job. Families need to have the opportunity to do that during this crisis. So, Doctor, just to be clear, the school year is long. Do you anticipate having this combination of virtual and in-person learning throughout the entire year and maybe even beyond? Certainly for the immediate future. I would say at least till the end of the calendar year. Okay. We'll see where we are in January and see if we need to do something differently. But we've given the parents the option. So if they choose one, we're asking them to commit for nine weeks. So we have to be ready to commit for an extended period of time. This could go in. There's no end in sight for this pandemic from everything that I've read and heard. So we need to be prepared to have these options available for the entire academic school year. Let's talk a little bit about the teachers. Some of them have expressed concern about being in the buildings. Yes, they have expressed a lot of concern. When we first started this journey, 90% of the teachers said they'd be willing to come in person. We just did a survey this week. That number is now down to 60%. So now 60%, probably almost 70% of our teachers said they're willing to come in person. But we have to make sure that they're going to be safe. So we got to have everything ready to make sure that the teachers feel safe. Um, and But we're very proud of our teachers that two-thirds of them have said, yes, we're ready to come in in person if you need us. Now, doctor, we, we talked about virtual learning versus in-person, but in-person school is important also because of, of, of the economic situation, uh, parents needing a place to send their children during the day because of daycare concerns. So uh, that and, and the importance of getting as, as much in-person school, schooling as possible. Even more so for us, because 90% of our parents are economically disadvantaged. That means they don't have the luxury of working from home like you and I do. They have to be on the job. They have to be in the hotels, they have to be in the restaurants, they have to be out on construction sites and whatever other jobs that they may have. So it is vitally important for us to have that opportunity. Also, we haven't seen our kids since March, and we're worried about the mental health and some of the other hazards that our students have been facing by not being in front of their counselors and teachers. So yes, we want to have in-person learning, but it has to be safe. That's and with each other, and with each other, right, doctor? Oh, absolutely, Kids, there's yeah. a lot of relationships. Yeah. We encourage our students to work together. They've got to learn how to get along. They've got to be working teams in extracurricular activities. So they have to be able to socialize but we have to be safe. You know, a lot of kids also, they rely on the school districts for food and for meals. Yeah, that's been a huge challenge for us. We, we now deploy meals every Thursday from um, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And we, are, we kept feeding people all summer because that's we, the main source of food for a lot of our families are the breakfast and lunch we provide. So they're picking up seven days worth of meals every Thursday at 40 different campuses that we have open uh, for them to have those meals available. You've been around a long time. I'm not calling you old, but you've been around <laughs> a long time. Is this your your biggest challenge as, as superintendent? No doubt. I mean, 26 years as a superintendent, and this year has been the biggest challenge. I did not have this uh, tornado, and I did not have this pandemic on my calendar. So it's taken all of my experiences to try to provide solutions. I have a great team and the board's been very supportive, 
But yes, no doubt, this has been the most challenging year of my career. And luckily, I'm an old guy with a lot of experience and been seen a lot of things that help me navigate these challenging times. Well, I don't think you're, you're old, Dr. Hinojosa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, glad you're, I'm glad you're staying safe, Superintendent. Dr. Michael Hinojosa, thank you so much for joining us this morning. NBC5 Today anchor Deborah Ferguson reported on three rural North Texas school districts that welcomed students to campus last week, Dublin ISD in Erath County and public schools in Godley and Keene, both in Johnson County. To watch and read about how the first day of school went for those districts, visit NBCDFW.com. The U.S. Senate was scheduled to adjourn this week for its August recess. Instead, Democrats and Republicans are trying to find a meeting point over the next coronavirus relief bill. One of the major sticking points is weekly unemployment benefits. Todd Gilman, Washington bureau chief for the Dallas Morning News, has the latest on the negotiations, plus the latest on polls showing statewide races tightening in Texas ahead of the November general election. A morning consult poll released Tuesday showed Democratic challenger M.J. Hager trailing incumbent Republican John Cornyn in the U.S. Senate race by just six points. Within hours of the poll's release, the Democrats' Senate campaign arm announced a seven-figure investment in the Texas race. The same survey found that President Donald Trump trails former Vice President Joe Biden, who's leading 47% to 46%. That's within the poll's margin of error. Back to Julian Gromer with Todd Gilmore. close is Congress to getting some kind of stimulus plan in place and getting the president on board as well? Pretty far away, unless something happens between the, the moment that we're talking and when people see this. As of Friday, it was a complete stalemate. The House Democrats practically two months ago passed $3.4 trillion in stimulus. The White House and Senate Republicans have been demanding $1 trillion. That's a very big change. The, the Democrats on Friday offered to split the difference, $2 trillion, $2.4 trillion, somewhere in there. And the White House said, absolutely not. They're, they're holding out for just a trillion. There was good jobless news on Friday as well, where unemployment is down to about 10%, which is quite good in context of the pandemic. And Republicans think that overspending for stimulus at this point would be unnecessary or, or fiscally foolish. So they seem pretty far apart. Yeah, Todd, that's the interesting fact of the latest job numbers. Have they lost the incentive to really move quickly on this issue and, and do something? I don't think that the jobless numbers were an extra incentive to try to come to a deal. I think if we had seen devastating job numbers, which of course nobody right. wanted to see, uh, that, that would have given them more of a, a boost to just get through it and figure something out. But time is getting short. We're three months away from the election. This is serious brinkmanship. I don't think it's it's like having the government shut down on the eve of an election. People are hurting. Tens of millions are still out of work and people with work have taken serious pay cuts. There are people with real problems and Congress and the White House are the only ones who can solve those problems or at least mitigate the problems. So I think that both Democrats and Republicans are taking a very serious risk. Todd, recent polls are showing that the Senate race is getting closer. It is. One poll we had from morning consult showed that MJ Hager, the Democrat, was within six points of Senator John Cornyn. There are other polls that suggest that she is even closer than Beto O'Rourke was this time two years ago. And, you know, the Beto phenomenon had not really taken off until 
right around now or in the coming weeks uh, after Labor Day, anything could happen. What we've talked about before, what's really different this year is that President Trump is at the top of the ticket. You could say that Joe Biden is at the top of the ticket, too, but I think everyone acknowledges that this election is to a great degree about Donald Trump and his leadership and the the pandemic and how that's been going. And um, that's a drag on John Cornyn that Ted Cruz didn't have to deal with two years ago. So while we're almost certainly not going to see, you know, the $100 million plus kind of spending that we saw two years ago, this could be a nail biter. Todd, lots of talk about Texas potentially flipping. Of course, a presidential, a Democratic presidential candidate hasn't won since Jimmy Carter in 1976 in Texas over Gerald Ford. So is this fool's goal for Democrats or, or do they really, does Biden really have a chance here? I think Biden really has a chance. Now, you know, nothing is static. He doesn't have a chance if he does nothing. And if he stays home in Delaware, he finally named a staff for Texas, some veteran operatives. It depends on how much money he pours into it. There was a suggestion last week that if only billionaire Michael Bloomberg would pump some of his money into Texas, that could really make the difference this year. It's within reach, which doesn't mean that it's a done deal, and it doesn't mean that Republicans are are hopelessly lost. It just means that Texas is a is a battleground. It's a legitimate battleground. Cruz only won by 2.6 percent two years ago. That was the worst that a Republican nominee statewide had uh, had done since, as you say, well, it's actually since '94, since any Democrat won statewide. Right. It, it is a battleground, but Democrats are going to have to take advantage of that, which is serious resources because it's a very big, expensive state to play in. Traditionally, conventions give a boost to nominees or parties that conventions begin in just about a week. Do you think this still happens? Do you get that bounce with the virtual conventions? You know, I was thinking about this and, and our friend Gromer, I, the, the best or one of one of the analogies I can come up with <laughs> Watching this convention is going to be like watching a Cubs game on a small black and white television. Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. You're going to get Grover right there. It's, it's, yes, it's the same game and you see it, but it's just not the same. I mean, I, I was thinking back and Grover and I this week have been reminiscing about past conventions, the electricity in the air when Sarah Palin gave her uh, speech as, as McCain's running mate in 2008, Senator Barack Obama's uh, keynote speech in 2004, which really was the launching pad for him to get the nomination for president and become president four years later. Um, it just takes all the all the life out of this. Um, there was there was news uh, that the Democrats are finally trotting out who's going to be, be speaking. So former Ohio Governor John Kasich, a Republican, is going to be speaking at the Democratic convention. Ooh, there's going to be a Republican speaking against Trump at the Democratic convention. Well, when Georgia Senator Zell Miller got up, a Democrat, at the 2004 convention and, and um, kind of did a takedown of fellow Democrat uh, John Kerry at the it was Miller was at the Republican convention that had a real oomph to it when when Joe Lieberman who had been the Democrats vice presidential nominee in 2000 got up for his friend John McCain at the 2008 Republican convention this was not just a television moment this was a moment because of the electricity in the hall and so the show the part that it juices up the rank and file of your own party but also conveys your enthusiasm to the broader electorate 
I just don't see how it, it, and, and it of course, of course, Todd, my, Todd, my friend, it breaks our streak. I haven't missed a convention since 96. Yeah. I didn't go to both conventions in 96, but this will, it's, you know, it, it's a disappointment. And I'm sure it's a disappointment for the parties too, okay. because it's built around the excitement building up to and then deliver at these conventions. In addition to the U.S. Senate and presidential races, Julian Gromer discussed another prize Texas Democrats have their eyes on in November. We talked a lot about Texas and discussion of it flipping during our show, but let's talk a little bit about the Texas House. You know, I think if you gave Texas Democrats a choice, do you want Biden to win in Texas or do you want uh, uh, Democrats to take over the Texas House? And they can only have one. Now, in, th in theory, if Biden wins in Texas, they probably win the House anyway, right? But they would probably pick the Texas House. You know, I think that's what they want more than anything else. Yeah, they want to break through with a statewide race, but winning the Texas House is, is so important to them and so important to politics down the line because of redistricting and other matters that that's where you're going to see a, a really strong effort in November for uh Nine seats, right, Julie? I think it's nine, nine, yeah. Yeah, and so you, they they will fight hard to win the Texas House. You know, as I see this all play out, and as we're talking about covering these conventions, it's such a new world with all right. of this. Yes, it, it is, and that's the that's the unknown. How do you sort of campaign in the coronavirus era? We saw in the runoffs, there were a couple of state house races where one candidate had a clear lead after early voting, but those candidates, there's one uh, candidate in Dallas and then one in Collin, I believe the Collin County area. And those candidates lost because they lost on election day. And the reason they lost on election day is they didn't know how to allocate the resources for, for poll workers and rides to the polls and, and that sort of thing because of the pandemic. So how do you play that? I mean, do you put, do you technically put people at risk or risk public safety by having workers actually knock on doors and reach out to voters? Or do you try to stick with virtual campaigning? We just don't know what this is going to look like when the presidential candidates, the main drivers in November aren't out there holding big rallies. How will that impact voter turnout? And I think what's going to be interesting in the convention, and you and I both know this, sometimes you cover something and you're there, and because you're there, you think it's a certain way, and then you find out it was received totally differently. Yeah, you, you do see that. I mean, you could be, be in a convention hall, right? And, and what you hear and feel, the energy there could be different than someone viewing it on television. But it's going to be really out of whack now because the virtual experience is even different than watching a live television event from a crowded or packed auditorium. It's just totally different. We saw it with the Democratic Party convention. They put on a, a, a pretty slick virtual convention, raised a lot of money off of it, but it was different. It was different. It, the, the feeling was different. The, the energy wasn't there. You, you saw uh, different kinds of video packages because Biden did his address from somewhere and it just looked different than what, what maybe uh, Kamala Harris was doing. It, so that feel is gone, the energy is gone, and you're just gonna have to find a way to tap into that, to the passions of voters 
in this environment, and that's what's difficult. You're still good old-fashioned telephone calling for people who pick up the phone still, right? And, and I, I just like you to know that I'm one of those okay, people. Okay, there you go. And, and then mailing, the, the mailing, uh, uh, opening up the mail, right, is one of the safest things you can do uh, in this pandemic. You know, that scale from one to eight, it was yeah. Yeah, it's one of the safest. So people, you can still expect to receive a lot of mail if you're a voter. But the prospect of going to that rally Remember in 2018, the hottest ticket in town, a Beto O'Rourke rally? Oh, remember that? Yeah. You know, Do you remember we'd leave and it would be like, we'd be there, it was so hot. It's so hot, the congestion, the yeah. traffic, and you know, Ted Cruz had big rallies. Ted Cruz well. had big rallies. All that is, is, is you, we haven't seen any of that uh, since March. And so it will be really interesting to see. I still expect the turnout to be heavy. You know, and, and, oh, and, I expect voter yeah. turnout. And Julie, what about mail-in voting? What what kind of impact do you think it'll have on the process? It, it'll all be interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to find out. All right, Gromer, we'll see you next Sunday. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait either. It's the yeah, best part you know, of my week. That's the thing is we're getting closer and closer to game time, right? Well, yeah, I know. Yeah. November yeah. will be here before you know it. Yes, it will. Already we have less than three months until Election Day. Thanks to Michael Hinojosa and Todd Gilman for joining the show this week. You can stay up to date on everything related to Texas politics at NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll see you next week.